Migration Media, this is Migratory Patterns. I'm your host, Mike Shaw. Sarah Peel is one of my Beijing friends from way back, and one of the friends who I admire the most. Originally from a small town in Ontario, she's lived near Hiroshima, Japan, in Beijing, and has been in Shanghai for six years. We met for a drink at our favorite Beijing bar to catch up when she was back in town a couple of weeks ago, and so that she could tell me all the details of her migration story. She's got a teaching career that she's built from scratch, even though it wasn't a path that she ever saw for herself until she moved overseas, and an amazing daughter, who she's raged into a pretty amazing person, all while navigating the crazy world of cross-cultural living, international marriage and divorce, and single motherhood in a foreign country. And for all the time I've known her, she's been one of the most level-headed, goal-oriented, and just crystal-clear-thinking people, someone who's hyper-aware of the situation she's in, the circumstances that she's living through, and has a really unique perspective about living overseas, the expat life, the migration experience that I really ever come across. I respect her a lot, and I think her story is one that we can all learn a lot from. This is one of the more fun interviews that I've done so far. Basically because we got to hang out at our favorite bar, as I mentioned. It's called Revolution in Beijing. It is hands down my favorite place to drink pretty much in the whole world of any place I've ever been. It's just this wonderful, kitsch-filled, cultural revolution-themed cocktail bar that is really casual. They got beer on tap as well as the best drinks you'll ever have mixed. And I'm really talking it up because you're going to hear a lot of it. It was very nice of them to let us come in a little bit before they open. You'll hear the staff moving around a little bit, some background noise, our drinks being made. Uh, I cut out the drinking as much as I could. You might hear a little slurp every now and again. And Towards the end, when they did open, they did have to turn on some background music, but it's not loud, and it's only for the last few minutes. I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. I hope you have as much fun listening as we did recording it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Sarah Peel. Sarah Peel, welcome to Migratory Patterns. Thank you. Nice to be here. Where is home? That's a, I think, as is for most people, a kind of complicated question. Um, for me, mostly home is where my family is right now. So for now, that means Shanghai. It's mm -hmm. been Shanghai for the last six years. Before that was Beijing. We still have a lot of friends and family in, in the city here. So it's sort of a second home. Um, and so the home I come from is in Lakefield, Ontario, which is a small town in rural Ontario outside of Toronto, a couple hours. Um, so I don't, I don't think I have one. I've got a bunch of them. Okay. Bunch of homes. That's good. Everyone is different, which I'm discovering as we yes. go. And, uh, <laughs> that's really blows me away. So when did you move overseas? So I left right after I graduated from university in 2000, graduated from Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick. And New Brunswick? Yes. Oh, so you went out to the Maritimes? I did. For... I spent four years in the Maritimes. Wow. Um, I haven't lived at home home in Ontario since full-time since I was 18 years old. Yeah. So that's several years now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, more than, longer than I lived there. Um, so yeah, I was in the Maritimes for four years, but I was a student. So we came and went from there with the academic year. Um, and then when I finished university, I was part of the Japan Exchange and teaching program. So the JET program is still run by the Japanese government, and they bring in, I think in its heyday, it was about 6,000, 6,500 
overseas new graduates, um, some of whom are brought in to work doing translation and they have Chinese or Japanese language skills when they come in. They come in from lots of different countries around the world. The majority are brought in as English teachers to work as co-teachers with Japanese teachers of English in the public school system. And the goal has always been to modernize the Japanese education system and broaden the experience of students in Japan, especially in smaller rural areas where you wouldn't necessarily have the same access to education um, without having to absolutely disrupt the curriculums that they had. So rather than try and convince everyone to get on board with that, they instead gave them the great privilege of having a foreign guest come and work in their schools. And then in that way, the local schools couldn't say no, even the more conservative areas. It's quite an honor to have someone provided for, it's paid by for the, by the national government. So I spent three, ultimately it was about five and a half years in Japan, but three years doing that. Five in, and a half years in Japan? I didn't yeah. realize you were that long yeah. in Japan. So yeah, so I was in Hiroshima Prefecture, which is in the southwest, most well known for its relations to the Second World War and the, so and the atomic bombings. Some went off there, yeah. Yeah, some, yeah. Th- some stuff went off yeah. and down and... Um, and that happened, but I didn't live in Hiroshima City. I lived in a small city called Onomichi, which has a population of about 100,000 people. But in Asia, that's not a big city. That's a town. Yeah. Uh, it had n- one shopping mall, no movie theater. Uh, and even at that point in the early 2000s, 65 to 70% of the population was over the age of 50. Yeah. So it was really, um, it was an interesting place. It was really creative town that really survives against all odds in Japan because it's been related to some sort of classic movies were shot there. They have a lot of, you know, um, a lot of art and community that happens there. But yeah, but you're so a small town girl, so you that was I was. Of- I've I've never lived anywhere as small as where I grew up. Like the town I grew up was twenty six hundred people. It's still about twenty six hundred people. Um, but when you were growing I was up, was, somewhere bigger. when you were, when you were growing up, were you always thinking I got to get out of here or not get out of here necessarily, but I knew that that was always a place I would go back to, mm-hmm. but it was not ever a place I could see myself living now. Sort of, I look at it, it's a little bit different. I'm on the other end of my adult life and I kind of look, okay, in 20 years, where do I want to be? We might end up there retired. It's a lovely place there's a lot of things going for it it's a great place to go in the summer with a family but it's you know i i wasn't desperate to get out you know you hear about people's stories who are like all i wanted to do was go to the big city i'm like no nah, it's all right you know but for, even for high school i left the small town that i grew up in and i went into peterborough and i went to an arts program in a larger high school um my my view has always been broader than than just where i was from and when so that program that took you to Japan, were you in school for education, and that came around, and you thought that's cool, or were you were you looking to go overseas? I mean, how, how did that work? Absolutely not. So I have a degree. I have an interdisciplinary degree in Canadian studies with Whoa. a minor in history. That's almost like and a I philosophy have, degree. Is like it's almost as useful, yeah. <laughs> um, but more people know what philosophy is, yeah. and uh, and I've never I've never worked at home as an adult, even with that as my background. Okay, we're going to take a time out here and get our beverages. Wow. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay, so, 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 so you have this inter, interdisciplinary Canadian studies degree. I do, And yeah. how does Japan come on the radar? This program is there, and you're so, like, let's do that. Why know, not? Well, I learned about Canada, part, so clearly being in Japan it, is where I want to be. 
part of it. Part of this program is sharing where you're from with wherever you go. So ah. there is that sort of um, connection there. So it, it makes a little more sense than, than it seems like on paper. Um, the other thing was that you got to remember in like 1999 was not a great time to be graduating. 2000, not a great time to be graduating from university. Unless you could oh. spell internet. But even then, it was getting unless tough. you could code internet, yeah. and even then, the you know that tech bubble was on its way down. It was clear it was going out. Um, I didn't at that point think I wanted to be a teacher. I I saw the workloads. I knew the people who I had grown up with who were teachers, and if I wanted to be a teacher, I didn't want to be that kind of teacher. Um, so. It actually was something my mom had heard about through somebody else. She was like, have you heard about this? Somebody sent this to me. You should you should look this up. So I did look at their website, which I don't think has changed much, frankly. It's still pretty rudimentary. It is applied to this. You apply through the embassy in Toronto. I flew to Toronto from the East Coast on the coldest week in February. It was, it was like around Valentine's Day. It was so cold, like minus 30 or something. Um, when I got there, my dad picked me up at the airport. I went to an interview at the embassy in Toronto, which is very was at the time very close to U of T. I cannot for the life of me figure out why they hired me. It was a terrible, probably the worst job interview I've ever done in my entire life. But something, either something in my experience or something in, in my outlook to them look like someone who would be able not only to do the teaching part of the job, but when you go on the JET program, you go and you become part of the community. So I didn't, go and get assigned to some big city or place with like elite students. I went and when I worked in Onomichi, I worked at Onomichi Shogyo Koko, which is the commercial high school. It's a trade high school of the, I try to remember how many kids were in the graduating class, probably close to 400 every year. I taught every child in the building once every couple of weeks with the teachers and six of those students went on to higher education. Wow. The rest either went to work in family businesses, they were doing bookkeeping certificates, that sort of thing. But those schools exist in Japan. I think we don't see them outside of that. But part of that, I then worked at the technical high school where my students had really rough lives. Like um, I worked with a teacher at a drinking problem who didn't even always show up. Like... Um, we, I had students who would... Foreigners, they're just like us. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah, except it's like their town. And you end up living inside a community where they can't hide it. Um, so that was, it was interesting. Um, my students, used to, I used to caught, caught my students huffing glue under a bridge near my house one time. Um, and their whole thing was I just needed to get through school. And I went to an island school I should take the ferry over to. And I worked at a school for the deaf once a month where they were required by law to teach English in the curriculum. So they did. Um, and I still have a student I'm sometimes in touch with from there, one of the few I've stayed in touch with, who is one of my deaf students because he did go into Internet technology. Um, so he, he that's his main mode of communication with lots of people is doing that. Yeah, so I was there. I did that for three and a half years. And then... Uh, I met my first husband who was from China there. My daughter was born there. And then the last job that I had in Japan was actually working in Japanese. And I worked at the Canadian Pavilion at Aichi Expo in 2005, which was a wild experience yeah. and completely different than anything I've been doing before. So you're going through this crazy international experience that was very unexpected. Did you, I mean, obviously you're still overseas. Did you, like, get a bug for it? I mean, how did you end up, you know, 
progressing from Japan to China and then Well that was a family connection and that was just after I had my daughter and we had some changes at home in Canada. I'd visited for eight week months. That's the longest I've been home since two thousand was eight months when mm. we lived there when my daughter was little. And um I think there are people who are deliberate planners who have great long plans of things and who have very specific goals for themselves. And I'm not one of those people. <laughs> Um, when I decide to do something, I do research and I do it, but quite often I'm more interested in what comes up or what I'm doing. I think what I did learn in all that time in Japan is that I'm someone who's very comfortable living outside of my majority culture. Like I can thrive and I can be very happy and very successful away from home and away from what is most familiar to me. Um, it's... To be honest, the hardest sort of going home we ever had was when we left Japan and I went home to Canada and I didn't have a job and I didn't have, you know, you didn't, friends. Know, you, you didn't know you were going to be going to China at that point. No, we hadn't yeah. quite decided yeah. and we we'd thought about it and we were talking about it, but I wanted to go home first to make sure. Um, but a new adventure is always easier and the re-entry stuff is really difficult. And um, China is a little different. China very much was all on my own terms. Like I never, I have a real hard time with the term expat because I don't think I've ever been one. That's um, one of the conceits of not only this podcast, but our whole migration media <laughs> thing is that we don't, you know, we're trying to reconcile. Well, it's not really to reconcile. There is no difference between an expat and a quote migrant. It's all tied up I in think, race I think and motiv- class. Well, but there's motivation different. Like I have always had the choice. I have the choice to go home. Right. We not have everybody has the choice of going home. Right. I have the choice of how I live and where I live, and I've made very deliberate and different choices than than many uh, in my. Well, this is my thirteenth year in China now, and I would never have thought I wouldn't have lived that long here. Um, I'm still not. I wonder sometimes, though, when people talk about how comfortable they are and how they know all these things about China, my first question is, you know nothing. Why do you think you know so much? Um, there's that wonderful graph that shows how much you know about China <laughs> yeah, based yeah, on yeah, the yeah. years. And then there's yeah. the, you know, it peaks at six months and then it drops down to a valley at five years. Yeah. It goes back up again and then it slowly tapers off. And then well, and I've had a different experience, right? Like I came in as a spouse to a Chinese national, but mm. just a Chinese national who'd lived away for a long time. And we moved to Beijing in 2006. He didn't know what was going on here either. Um, And it took me a long time to figure out that there was a lot of adjustment for him in that as well. Um, I can imagine from, I mean, if he had left in the 90s. He'd left in the 90s and he'd lived in Japan. And then his hometown is not Beijing. His hometown is in the northeast. And he thought he could come here and function. And I think it was really humbling for him to realize how difficult that really is and how difficult it may always be. Like, I don't think he's ever really found his feet here. Um, and I don't know, that's up to him now. Um, that relationship ended for a lot of reasons on its own. We're on good terms now. It's part of the reason we're in Beijing now is my daughter's been visiting her dad. But it, it it puts you in a very different position when you come in and you you don't have a lot of the privilege that you see in the city, even in the people who live here. Like a lot of people come from outside and they think, oh, okay, you know, all foreigners here are rich. Well, no, there were days where I could barely afford rent to feed us and then to take the bus. Like it's, 
it's it's interesting to see a city from a different perspective that way. And I also think from the perspective of me, my daughter's half Chinese. So the approach we have always taken to being here is that she needs to be connected to the community. She needs to be part of not just the expat community or the, you know, the foreign sort of temporary community here, but also people who are going to be here and have ties to the city that are much deeper than that. Um, and those are the relationships I think that have really sustained her and sustained us through through a lot of changes and a lot of years yeah i mean i've known you i don't think this is my first year but not too long after that mm. i mean i i've known you for well i knew you for a couple few years before you left and you've been yeah. gone six years so i've probably known you for almost, so eight to ten years i can't really yeah remember nine now. years i think because in yeah. the first year i did not know you but and uh i can remember i think the first time i met you might have been at Music festival? Could have been. Did we go to, like, might have been in uh, Deton Park? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, it yeah, might have been, been Deton yeah. Park. Yeah. I remember when little Minnie you was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's not Minnie now. She's 14. Now, so. I, I saw that in your I saw that in your WeChat moments that she's 14. I was like, oh, my God. Like, even me, I've got a, I've been here long enough at the point to the point where I will shake my head and go, geez, so much, like, wow, like, there's a little human being that is becoming, mm. a, a like, an almost adult that I knew when yeah. she was tiny. Yeah. Like, that. that's when you've been in a place long enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's been part of the motivation for staying. It's always been that she didn't choose this life. She didn't choose to yeah, have family from her. two. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a tyrant. Um, <laughs> not really. But, uh, no, but, but the, 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 the principle has always been she needs to be able to speak Chinese. She needs to be able to function comfortably between both cultures and then make choices for herself when she's old enough to do that. For us, that meant her going to Chinese school. And a lot of that came from me. Um, I think her dad probably would have, he just assumed that she would probably go to school in English, especially after, you know, our, our marriage ended. And Well, from I the Chinese the perspective, parent. that's what you would do. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but then she wasn't getting Chinese from anywhere else. But it, that, that's not a choice she made. None of these are choices she made. Um, that said, I'm not running my whole life for her. Like, we moved to Shanghai six years ago for me. Um, and that actually, long term, has been a really good career move for me, beyond the personal reasons for why we went. But I got a job in an international school. Could I have done that here? Maybe. But there are more options and someone daft enough to hire me there. So so that's what I've done down there. And uh, that's been that's been good for all of us. Um, and there's a lot of, you hear about a lot of rivalry between Beijing and Shanghai. But they're really just very different cities with very different approaches and, and experiences. Like Beijing is really rough around the edges. Um, it's still a place where there's a lot of divide between people who have all the money and all the power and then everybody else. And as a seat of government, you know, you feel that tension here. You feel the way things change here. You know, when I first came to Beijing, it really, in 2006, it felt like anything was possible here. And and for a certain extent, it was. It doesn't like, quite feel that way anymore. No, it doesn't. Feels a, it feels, doesn't, a it feels more different. Barriers, yeah. Um, well, and part there's, of that, there's still plenty of opportunity, but it's it's all within a within a. You kind of have um, very clear boundaries now around everything. 
Well, there and, was always a way to do anything. Yeah. It's, for some people, that worked out a lot better than others. Yeah. Like um, some of the stories people tell about Beijing are hysterical, but also shocking. The things people got away with, or thought they could get away with. Whereas, you know, there is there's something to be said. You know, there's a lot of good here too. When I came here, there were three subway lines. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many there are now. We got a map <laughs> when we got here because I was like, I don't know where this is. Oh my god, like. Opening line 10 and line 5 was a big deal right before the Olympics, and then I kind of lost track. Like, um, Whereas in Shanghai, it sort of feels like everything works, and there's much more of an international feel to the city. It's well, a lot laid back. I I'll, mean, you can I'm, still find packets of, yeah, I'm of gonna whatever say, you need. But. I'm going to say two things. Number one, you're the rare Beijing trader who is still on good terms because you come back. and you, Trader? Trader, Ooh, yeah. Those you, are fighting words. Yeah, because you'll move to Shanghai, and you like it there. Uh <laughs> But uh, I rarely have to wash my feet when I go in from walking around the neighborhood in Shanghai. I will just say that. Do not have the same experience here. But um, for whatever reason, the other thing is that uh, well, just step back for a second. There's a there's a very there's very much a Beijing Shanghai dynamic that would be familiar to Americans if they understood the Boston New York thing. Mm. And even the attitudes of the cities themselves are very much the same. Mm. Boston is very like Beijing, very full of itself culturally. Although Boston's not the capital of the country, it still sees itself as kind of the center of at least progressive political thought and, and you know, where the, all the revolution happened, the country was born there, all that stuff. Beijing is very much that attitude. We are the heart of China. I would, yeah, know? I'd say that. I would say the caveat being that there is very little progressive about this town. Yes, no, that's the other, that, that's... It's, it's a government a, town. Yes, and government it's a town. very conservative government town, both in terms of yeah. the people who live here as foreign diplomats because they are so constrained in what they can do and yeah. say. And that so they are... A very large and important part of this community here. Also, politically here, things are very tight. So it, yeah. it's um, yeah, we we and, know, and a little different. And then Shanghai, like New York, is almost not even. I mean, it's it's basically a global city. It's not even a Chinese city anymore. I mean, it's, no, see, I would push back on that a little bit. That Shanghai is its own yeah type of Chinese thing. city. Okay, that's fair. It is. It is. Okay, so it is an international city, and certainly if you're in certain areas of the city, you don't know where you are. If you're over in, in Pudong, and you're in Lujezwe, and you're in the where it's like second highest building in the world, and like this aquarium, and that crazy, and you know, you'll go, and there'll be an exhibit on, and you're like, I didn't even hear about that, you know, because it's such a big town, there's so much going on. But the neighborhood we live in, we've made a really deliberate choice when we chose where to live this time, a couple of years ago. And even other times, too, to make, but especially this time, we've decided to live in Laoshimen. And Laoshimen, for people who are familiar with the city, is where Line 8 and Line 10 meet. Mm-hmm. And it's just where in Shanghai's history, there used to be an old Chinese city. And the Chinese city was actually separate from the other areas of the city that were held by foreign powers. So there was a British settlement, there was an American settlement, there was a French the f- you know, the French yeah. section of town. And then there was an international sub, um, settlement that came out later out of the British and American settlements and went a long way across. And a lot of that architecture is still there. It's beautiful. It's, you know, tree-lined streets. But you'll walk along and there'll be like a Spanish villa next to an English country home, next to a 45-story modern apartment building, next to a Soviet chic something that's covered in bathroom tile. It's very unique. It's Shanghai, really Shanghai interesting is super unique, yeah. The area of the city we live in has less of that than more uh, most areas because it was the quote-unquote Chinese city. So it was the section of the city that 
was where Chinese nationals were allowed to live when it became an international treaty port. The buildings were mostly, they're the Lilong, they call them, they're the lane houses. They were mostly built between 1910 and 1930. Again, before the economy really crashed out in Asia, the Japanese showed up and things went really crazy. That's a short history of Shanghai in about 15 <laughs> words. We live in that neighborhood, just on the edge of that neighborhood. Now, I live in a modern building. It was built about 10 years ago. I'm watching currently out our window. The lot next to us that was empty is now being built. It's a mixed blessing because the people who live in those neighborhoods, the houses haven't been kept up and it's been, you know, it's a tough place to live. But at the same time, it's a neighborhood where we go out in the street and you can still buy lunch for five kwai if you want to. You can get a bowl of noodles or ten. I mean, in Shanghai, we spend money. We're big into spending money. We're very good at it. Everything's expensive. There's also, though, people there of all ages... There's people who have lived in the city a really long time. And the really older people will talk to you every once in a while. They just, when they figure out that you've been around for a while, and especially with my daughter, she's a bit of a key to some of that stuff because she reads as Asian enough. They figure it out. Hmm. She looks exactly like me, but she's the Asian mini-me pretty much. It's, it's kind of funny. It's like looking into a mirror, but the mirror has like an Asia film over it. Yeah, pretty much. Hmm. I mean, there's baby photos of her wearing the same dress that my dad had bought for me when we were both one year old. And it does just look like you put a filter on this You thing. could like run some kind of investment scam where you're like, I have this wonderful new app and it has an Asia filter on it. And it makes you look Asian and just no, no, transpose that's, the that's, pictures. That's just the iPhone XS. It has the whole, <laughs> you can do that. Don't worry. There's already an app for that. There's an app for everything. Um, anyway, all this to say that like we have this neighborhood and it's there and, and there is real Chinese, Chinese. They speak Shanghainese there. There are people in our neighborhood who do not speak Mandarin. They never have. They're older. They never will. The Shanghainese itself comes and goes. It's a bit of a political football that gets thrown around sometimes. All the buses have announcements in English, Mandarin, like standard Mandarin and, and Shanghainese. Uh, Shanghainese people will just default to speaking Shanghainese to one another. And, they even when, know they're and doing when Beijingers it. come to town. Well, yeah, they, they really like to do that. <laughs> yeah, they we just really mess with it's happened to me. Um, but I notice it at work, too, or even if I'm in a taxi. Like, you'll be in a cab, and if you speak Mandarin, as soon as someone feels comfortable, they switch to Shanghainese, and they don't mean to. It just happens. So there really is, I would I would really push back on this, like, Shanghai is not China. It is China. It's, in some ways, some of the best of what China can be. It's also, though, a city that has a history unlike any other city. Maybe Hong Kong. But Hong Kong was held by a separate power for a long time. Shanghai hasn't been since 1937. Um, well, 39 when the Japanese left. But but even at that point, you know, we talk a lot about what happened in the foreign settlements. We talk a lot about the losses to those communities. People forget about the 40,000 Shanghainese people who died during those invasions in 37. Um, it's, it's there, and it is a Chinese city, but it's a different kind of Chinese city. And... I think there's more diversity within China itself than than is easy to see from outside. Oh, very much so. It's one of the things I always tell people when they come here or when I'm back home and I'm back at home, back in the U.S. And, you know, I'm talking to them. I try to try to explain to them how incredibly diverse China is. You know, there's 50 something ethnicities. There's, you know, 30 something different unique cuisines. Well, actually, there's one for every ethnicity, but, you know, a couple of super cuisines, whatever. Yeah. But, you know, it's just... It's crazy. And, you know, what's fun for me 
about living here is that we get to kind of marinate in all of this yet mm. still be outside of it but your your perspective is is interesting to me because you are marinating in it while you're also watching your daughter marinate in it and it's it, she's actively a part of it you know what i mean so what what were the concerns that you had like when you when you had your daughter and you moved here what would did you have all these kind of ground rules and and did you have your vision laid out ahead of time or is this something you kind of figured out as you went along i think I, I'm someone who figures things out as I go along, but I have some sort of guiding ideas that have always guided what we've done and what I do. Um, and it's reflected in what I do professionally now, but it's, um, <clears throat> one was that it, my daughter being bilingual was not optional. That was going to happen. Um, the best way to do that, along with a lot of other reasons, financial, like trying, you know, Trying to raise a family in Canada is not cheap. It's not always cheap here either. Don't kid yourself. But it's more manageable, especially when they're very young. I also think that there's an importance of having languages when you're younger. Um, I learned Japanese in my 20s. I've learned Chinese informally for the most part, mostly in my 30s. At this point, I have put my foot down and said, we are not living somewhere that doesn't at least use Roman letters uh, if we ever move again, because I'm done. And I'm done with being places where my being there is contingent on employment. You know, I've, I've always worked and I've always, uh, I had a spouse visa when I first moved here, but for the last 10 years, nine years, I've been here on my own terms. I have my own visa. Um, I provide the visa for my daughter. She's not here as the um, child of a Chinese national because you can't do that and go to school. There are really weird rules hmm. that that make it difficult. Oh, to international school? Or? To any school. You can't register for grade one oh, unless you have a residence permit she, for that city. And her father doesn't have a And you cannot a get Hukou. a resident permit here. Yeah. She could live in, in Dongbei, up in Jilin, where they're from. Yeah. There wouldn't be a school that you would want her to go to there. Um, that said, I've also been very confident and conscious of the fact that children are capable of much more than we ever give them credit for, and that by having English at home, as long as you keep it going, like I'm not big into tutoring, yet I'm a teacher, but I'm not, we never did phonics at home, we would read books together, we did a lot of really normal kid things, quote unquote normal children things, when she did activities on weekends and things, those were in English for the most part. But it wasn't, you know, those kinds of choices I could make. Um, I couldn't afford to send her to an international school we started. I couldn't make that happen. But I'm glad I didn't. Because the Chinese school is probably harder on me than it was on Julia. Because I had no idea what happened inside those walls from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. or whenever I picked her up. In the end, though, it built the language skills she needed. And when she did switch to the international system four years ago, she was ready. And then it, it, the language part in English has caught up quite quickly. Like a Chinese person. Like a Chinese kid. They, like anyone. They Chinese, I mean, well, they go to Chinese school here for the first several years, and then eventually they'll get into an international school. Oh. You know. Sometimes. It's a little more complicated than that. I think the other thing, too, is that people don't realize is that to reach academic proficiency in any language takes three to five years for anyone. It doesn't matter whether you start at a high level or you start from zero. That's how long it takes. Is that how long it took you when you when you came here 
I mean, you obviously had Japanese, but you'd married a Chinese guy and you're moving to China mm-hmm. to raise a half Chinese daughter. Yeah. How did you approach that immersion? Like, did you go in and like, I got to learn the language? Did you focus on that? I didn't. I didn't have time. I was self-employed um, and I was our primary breadwinner. So that wasn't going to happen. A uh, couple things for people who don't know about Japanese. Japanese is a really bizarre language. Um, it's not tonal like Japanese Chinese is, but it uses Chinese characters. The Chinese characters that are used in Japanese and the Chinese characters that are used in Mandarin Chinese are connected, but not the same. So Mandarin has a simplified character system, which has been actually a great innovation. It's actually led to people being literate here. Millions and literally a billion people being literate, where before the language was so difficult, that was not possible. There is there is more credit that should be given to that than ever is because it gets thrown in this political corner of, well, they did it to differentiate from Hong Kong or to differentiate from Taiwan. So maybe they did, but the benefits are huge. All this to say, about 30% of the characters between the two languages are recognizable. Very thankfully, they're sort of the first one that you, the ones that you learn. So the 600 or so characters that I could competently use in Japanese were ones I could use, Mm. at least to read for meaning in China. So I showed up and I was not nearly as illiterate here as I was when I showed up in Japan because I'd be able to like, oh, this is the street east and this is the street west. Like you knew your ABCs, basically. Basically, I could read for meaning, but Mm. I couldn't necessarily tell you what that meant. But it also meant that figuring out what Dongjimen, why Dazie was, was a lot easier when you know, okay, Dong is east and um, Zimen. Okay, Zi, I haven't figured out. Men is a gate. Okay, the east gate. Why? Outside. Uh, Dajie. Dajie is big road. I got that. We're good. Um, so you could figure that out, and then that taught me a lot of Japanese, Chinese on the way through. So that, that helped a lot. But when we showed up with Julia, I mean, children are funny, and they're really... I know you Far put food more in their mouths and it comes out their backside. That's not funny. That's that's biology. <laughs> that's just what happens. Um, that's required, actually. Those are like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's like way at the bottom there. Uh, food, shelter, right there. Um, but when you when you come with a child who's bilingual, it's very funny. My daughter was one when she moved to Canada, and she was almost twenty months when we moved here. And when she first moved to Canada, even though she had spoken in English a bit at home, and when we were first in Canada, she spoke nothing but Chinese. And it was her personal protest. That was it. Like, I, I understand what you're saying, but I'm not. And what's going on here? Because it had been her, her Chinese grandma and her dad and I in Japan. So it was English and Chinese at home. Her dad and I spoke Japanese. But that was really just a language between the two of us. Julia mostly recognizes words for food and familiar things. And even still, that's about where she is with Japanese. And then when we moved here, we just kept going with that. Uh, We did a lot in English. But when she moved to China from Canada after being there for eight months, she refused to speak Chinese for three months. She wasn't two yet, but she could make those protests. She was just like, I don't understand what's happening around me. This doesn't make any sense. But what I know is I can do this. So even with her dad, she would speak English to him. Again, not a choice she made. But one that she probably benefited from long term. When her grandma came back to live with us, something kind of flipped with her. And she went, oh, okay, so grandma really doesn't speak any English. That's not even pretending. you know." And then we were back to So We did mostly what they call one parent, one language. Um, oh, yeah, each one of you picked Each a, one of us yeah. spoke a language. And then Shotian and I just spoke a third language in between. But it didn't really matter. 
we understood enough of each of the other or what was going on. And you get really good at doing short conversations. So something we've always done with Julia when she was little, we'd be out in the playground or something and she, I'd be like, okay, we have to go in five minutes, whatever in English. And people would stand around and kind of look at you and you just give them like the shortest version ever. Like we are talking about when we were going home in Chinese and everybody's like, Oh, okay. I know what that's about. Cause it's just curiosity. They just want to know what the conversation's about. One day, I think. Um, so we did that. And then she went to Chinese kindergarten and as she had more peers who spoke Chinese. She would often do play and things in Chinese and then join us later for, you know, we did books at home in English. We would watch TV was in English. It was just a, you know, when mom's home, then we flip. And and that's what we did. You're doing like a, you're doing like a, it's like a third culture kid, but she's. But it is, but, but it's not. But it's right? not. It's no, not. It's not because she's in one of her cultures. Like it's, it's this weird it's it's it sound it's it, it sounds like a third culture kid situation, but it's not because she's in one of her home cultures. Mm-hmm. Except that neither of the home cultures fully accepts who she is, and that's where the third culture right. part comes in for for children like my daughter. She, she's got a third culture kid experience when theoretically she shouldn't have one. Well, theoretically, if she was in any other culture, and maybe you know, maybe it would be different if we lived in Canada because that would be a non-negotiable. Like I am Canadian because I'm here. Right. It's a more accepted diversity. Diversity is just more of an accepted fact. It is. And also, though, the parts that wouldn't be accepted, there would be the parts that would be harder to see. Like, okay, you're half Asian, but no one would ever hear her speak Chinese. Or very rarely in public at home. It just doesn't happen. Do you guys speak Chinese amongst yourselves when you're back in Canada just my to Chinese share a secret? Is, my Chinese is not great. Um, the other thing is in Canada, let's be real, there's enough people who speak Chinese. It's yes. never a secret. There's always somebody <laughs> listening. Um, it's just not. It's not. In a major urban center, we don't. When I am going, when I go back to Boston for visits, I hear and see so many. I see so many Chinese. I hear Mandarin all the time, and I just want to turn around and start talking to these people. To be fair, my daughter did do that this summer. We were, in, uh, we were actually at the Governor General's residence which is the oh. figurehead for the queen yeah okay. so actually we were really proud of her this summer my mom was really proud of her because there was somebody from mainland china who was speaking mandarin and they were like there and they were like what my daughter calls a click click tourist so like they were like take the picture take the picture mm-hmm. we got to get out of here we got to go the next thing take the picture and um and he was he's muttering in chinese going like i don't know how to get out of here like and it was a little confusing you know, because it's a historic home. It's not obvious, like, this is the exit. Follow the pathway here. So she did go and help him to get get out of our Governor General's residence this summer. Um, and that was nice to see because she doesn't always... She doesn't have to do that. Like, she can, she can blend in enough that people don't ask questions. Um, but sometimes she does feel like, like that's the place to go. She's also mentioned, too, she goes to international school now... Um, and there are a lot of other Asian children and Chinese-speaking children there. But she's like, I'm the only one who's connected to real China, is how she describes it. I'm like, well, what does that mean? So, well, I read things on the internet in Chinese. I get what the new memes are and the jokes and all these things. So, but my classmates don't. Like, they might read in Chinese, but they do that as academic work. Or they do it as what they do in the community for day-to-day stuff they're not connected to the culture not in the same way um so i'm not i'm not much of a tiger mom i don't push on 
academics in the same way that, that some parents do. But I do make really deliberate choices. Like, we live on the subway line, so she can take the subway to work, or to school. And I, it's to my work nearby as well. That's a deliberate choice. You should be with your community. You shouldn't be in a private car all the time. There's a lot of little things like that now I can see where the, the, the time and the insistence before has, has benefited her and put her in a position where, which is where I wanted her to be. I want her to be able to read. I want her to be able to write. And I want her to be able to engage with one of her two cultures and her family, frankly, on her own terms, because that shouldn't be determined by me long term. That said, it's also informed what I do. Like I work at a bilingual school now. Um, I have a really odd and unique job where I, I teach music in a co-teaching situation where we switch between English and Chinese all day long. So we do a song about spiders in English. We do a song about spiders in Chinese. We do, and it, it's really mixed and, and, and different, but quite effective. And what we're finding in the building is that the children just go with us because because they're having a bilingual experience too it's a chance where they get to sort of consolidate a lot and put things together um, and it's, it's hard to measure that but when you see it in practice it's you know it, it, it's good to see so it's it's not just her that in the end has benefited from well from I'll, this. I, I'll say I've met Julia she's adorable and she's uh, super smart. She's funny. She is funny. I'll give her that. She's, she's pretty super funny. funny. She's funny. You'll give her that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm her mom, right? Like, I'll give been, her that. She's there's funny. a whole different podcast to be done on parenting teenagers that I need to listen to. So if you can find an well, expert, I, I didn't want um, to get into the does she is she at the I hate you phase yet? But I'm I'm no, sure we're that, not that bad. I mean, the the <laughs> thing is too when you grow up and you move, and when home becomes who the people are in your home, then then you're much closer with them. Like I think Julia and I are much closer than my mom have, and I have ever been. You're also kind of going through this bicultural experience together. That's well, gotta... yeah, it's not optional. Though, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and and I think she now is at a point where she sees how she can make it work, and she can tell us what she wants to do. So she's made choices. Like she's made. She's a not choice. the two-year-old who just refuses to speak in Chinese. Now she no, can exactly. Verbalize I mean, she's always made out. her own choices, but she she makes choices now. But she makes choices that are considered. So it's things like she's taking. There's a lot. There's external exams that she does at her school in a couple of years' time, and she's made the decision not to take native level. Not because she's not capable of it, but very much because she's aware of what that means. And she's like, I don't want to be a Chinese academic. I don't want to study Chinese literature. I'm interested in sciences. I need to keep learning. I need to keep using my language. But that isn't where I need to be. I need to do this. And and because of how she came to the decision, it was easier for us to be like, okay, you know, you've put the time in, you know. You know what's going on. Um, well, that's awesome. I, I, like I said, I think she's great. I think you've done an awesome job. Good job uh, having that kid. Good thanks. job having it, the child survive and raising the person into, uh, you know, an yeah, almost well, adult. You know, a few more years and then we'll be. Yeah. Then we'll see. Mission accomplished. Well, no, then we see what happens because that's when it gets interesting for the question of home, right? Yeah. Is what happens when, when she goes somewhere else? Because she will. She won't do school here. Um, what, what do we do? You know, my partner now is British, so 
we we have lots of conversations about okay what does that mean for us later what does that mean you know we the the realities of education are emptiness we, syndrome for expats has got to be this whole other level of complicated that i haven't even begun to think about exploring yet no it, it it's it's interesting because it's we're not even there yet and it's not even like you know my partner and i my partner's british and being like do we want to live in your country or my country? Like, it's not even down to that. It's like, do we want a third country? <laughs> do we, you know, I'm not ready to retire. My Menage goes, a nation. I don't know. Yeah. We're already a big mess of that. So, um, you know, it becomes a, what do you do with that? And so far, all we've come down to is we will do what we feel is right. Again, it's, it's like, I don't have a set plan. I'm like, right, I'm going to tick all these boxes. And then, you know, like maybe this is the five years while you're in university that we live in a tropical country where it would have been difficult for her to get a high school education. Maybe it's when we're like, okay, we can go live in the middle East and make the mega bucks because we don't have to worry about what it means to raise a teenage girl in a culture that is more restrictive than, than the options we want to give her. Maybe, you know, not even joking, maybe we follow her. Like, maybe she makes the decision, you know? You can become the trailing parent. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We're like, hi, we would not be the first. <laughs> you know, it becomes a whole different thing. Like, okay, maybe we go to the UK. Well, how do we do that? Things are changing there oh, yeah. in terms of residency, in terms of what's happening with the EU. There's so many things that you can make a best plan for and not decide where to go. You know, we love the idea of retiring in Canada. Do we have to go and work there for 10 years to make sure we get pensions? Like that's, you know, it's a whole different level of, of questions and, and consideration. And it always sort of comes down to, okay, well, home will be where we are and we'll figure out what's best for us well, when we get there. Well, we are going to have you back in here and we'll sit down and chat when Julia has picked a college and, and we'll talk about your decision to either follow her or not. There you go. I hope, <laughs> I hope we're going for tropical island. That's my current possible. Have her go to the University of Guam, maybe. I've heard Hawaii is nice. Hawaii, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Well, thanks so much for coming in, Sarah. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Good luck. Thanks. So there you have it. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you had as much fun with that as we did recording. If you're in Beijing and you've never been to Revolution, or if you're visiting and you're looking for a good place to check out, I've actually got a link to help you find Revolution Bar in the show notes. If you're listening on iTunes or really any podcatcher, please take a moment to subscribe give us a rating, give us some five stars that help other people find us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.